1: The lottery winner that year was Bud Post. He won $16.2 million. And then his life began to unravel. You've heard these stories before. His former girlfriend sued him successfully in court and took away a third of that money. (laughs) His brother was arrested for attempting to murder him to inherit the money. And then he invested the money in a family business and lost most of it. And within a year, he was a million dollars in debt. He lived quietly the next 18 years of his life on about $450 a month. Sad story. But there are many like it. I'm not going to do all of them, but just a couple of examples. Evelyn Adams won not just one, but remarkably back-to-back lotteries in 1985 and 86 in new jersey 5.4 million dollars but she couldn't take the publicity wherever she went people recognized her and you know that she was bombarded by requests for her for help so you know what she did she went to atlantic city and she blew it all on gambling then she didn't have people coming to her for money (laughs) gerald muswagon won $10 million in the Canadian lottery in 1998 and splurged his money on cars and partying and drugs and alcohol and gifts for friends and lost his money investing it in a bad logging business in Canada. Ran out of money and then ended up working hard labor on a farm to make ends meet until he hanged himself in his parents' garage in 2005. Billy Bob Harrell a Texan, a preacher, a preacher. No, I don't play the lottery. Okay. He worked at Home Depot. He won $31 million in 1997, and then he blew it all on vacations, buying a ranch, six houses, new cars, personal gifts, and then he loved to give money to charity. Within two years, he had divorced his wife and committed suicide. Last one. Rhoda and Alex Toth won $13 million in Florida in 1990. They wasted it on exotic vacations, mostly at gambling casinos, and lost their money there and in land investment. Within 15 years, they were destitute, but that's not the end of the story. They didn't pay all their taxes, and so they were indicted for tax fraud by the IRS to the tune of $2.5 million. I guess the point is very obvious. Winning the lottery is not necessarily always such a blessing. They sometimes produce losers as well as winners. In fact, these are not typical of what happens. Most winners, according to most research, lead happy lives, and they're grateful for their winnings. One Ohio study showed that 85% of the people that win a lottery continue their normal lives, and most of them actually continue working at their old jobs. But the point is this. I think it's obvious. These examples remind us that there are hidden perils in prosperity. There are hidden dangers in success. And joy is not defined by what? It's not defined by wealth or things. We began our look at joy last week, and we continue it this week in Psalm 30, a Psalm of David. And I'll remind you of a couple of things we said last week. The heading in most of your Bibles says that it's a thanksgiving, but it's a thanksgiving for deliverance from death. It's one of 13 thanksgiving psalms in the book of Psalms. And it reminds us of the lament that runs through most of the first book. David laments, but then he also celebrates the deliverance of God in most of those first 41 psalms. It's a a psalm of dedication of the house. And I didn't talk about that much last week because it really bears on the discussion today more than last week. There are a couple of possibilities about what the house is that is being dedicated. It could be in the early part of his life where we see in 2 Samuel 5, parallel 1 Chronicles 14, where he builds a palace. And he has his own house and maybe perhaps is dedicating that Or it could be near the end of his life as he's preparing to build the temple Which God then tells him he is not going to build His son's going to build it And that's found in 2 Samuel later in 24 Parallel in 1 Chronicles 20 and 21 There are two reasons to rejoice in this psalm, I think We talked about one of those last week, and that is that God rescues us through adversity, verses 1 through 5. Today I want to look at the second part of that, verses 6 through 12. And the idea here is that God delivers us in prosperity, which is a really odd statement to make. Why does someone need to be delivered in prosperity? Last week what we talked about was that God rescues us not from adversity... But the preposition was important He rescues us through adversity Uh, He walks with us Through life's problems He's not a helicopter God Who just drops in and pulls us up Out of adversity every time we ask Him to And just as hope We said about three weeks ago Just as hope springs from tribulation We saw last week that joy often emerges from sorrow and anxiety. And last week we observed that in the beginning of the psalm that David reminds us that God can relieve us of some very profound fears and adversity. The fear, remember, of of not being safe, the fear of danger to our health, and the sense of mortality that we have and the fear of death. And the Lord answered David's cry for help in all three instances, And it transformed David's mourning to joy. Remember that weeping endures for a night, but joy comes when? In the morning. And what we said about that in conclusion is that he can rescue us here and now. No matter what difficulty or problem you're facing, I'm facing, you're facing that are watching this morning. He can deliver. He's done it before, and he encourages us to pray for deliverance from that adversity. And when God rescues us, something happens. We experience joy, but it's joy the other side of faith and hope. And what that does is it then reminds us that our faith and hope is strengthened through that joy. And in this life, we ultimately lose those battles. In this life, we are mortal and we eventually die. In this life, we do encounter other problems, not just one that God rescues us from, but we know this, that that adversity is temporary, that Jesus Christ has defeated death. He has vanquished death, and He provides a home for us, and He has gone to prepare that home for us. And if we believe in Him, we then go home to be with the Father and live with Him eternally. So joy comes to us not as a thing, not as a quantity, not as a substance, not as a feeling, not as an emotion, but joy comes to us clothed in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ, who is still physically present. He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is our bright and morning star. So weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning and the morning star of Christ. But what about the second part? Verses 6 through 12, this week, God delivers in prosperity, in verses 6 through 12. To summarize what I'm about to read in those verses, I think it says this. You see, what God had done is he had rescued David from adversity in the first five verses, and that caused him to do what? It caused him to prosper. But in prosperity, in prosperity just as in adversity, it is easy for us to take our eyes off of God. Now just a cursory reading of this psalm would suggest that he is simply praising God for all that he's done. But I think what happens here is there's a gear shift in in verse 6 and following. In fact, I think that is exactly what David has done. He has taken his eyes off of God momentarily, even that man who sought the heart of God. He had a heart for the heart of God. He also was a human. He was frail. And we know of some of his failures. And I think he's talking about that here. He's confessing you see prosperity has made David not just confident but overly confident prosperity has made David not reliant on God but a bit full of himself and what happens God rebukes David and what it does is it exposes him to all the adversity that he had experienced before but worse than that God has turned his face from David so David repents And he seeks the Lord's favor and restoration, and God does that, and then it issues forth in a renewed joy that is even deeper than before, and his compelling desire to praise God. Let's stand together as we hear the word of God. Beginning in verse 6, now, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. O Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I called, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper." You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. Let's be seated. You see, God had delivered David from, prosperity, uh, from, from adversity, but now what he needs to do is he needs to deliver him in the midst of his prosperity. There are a couple of possible background stories for these verses. Uh, you, remember, it's at the dedication of the house. And I said it may have been in the early part of his life or it may have been in the latter part of his life. Story number one, early part of David's life, 1 Samuel 5 through 7, paralleled, as you well know, in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 13 through 16. The house could have been, in the early part of his life, David's palace. Or, in fact, he's preparing to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and the tabernacle's not there. He's put up a new tabernacle. And it's not the temple, but it's going to be the house of God. So we don't know which of those two it might be early in his life, but we know this. At this stage, in the early part of 2 Samuel, David has experienced great success and prosperity. He's united Israel all into one nation again. He has made Mount Zion. He has captured it from the Jebusites. And he has made it his capital. And you notice what he says. He calls it my mountain. My mountain is, is, has been made to stand strong. And he has built a splendid palace with the help of the king of Tyre, Hiram, the king of Tyre. And in and 2 Samuel 5, it says, it says this about that time when it talks about his house. It says, David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. And that's a good thing. And then two verses later, it says, And David exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So I think there's a bit of a danger there. You see, David is prospering. And there is peril in prosperity if we're not careful. I think what happens is that pride, or I think the popular term today is hubris, has blinded David, and it's caused him to ignore God's instructions. Because you know the story of the uh, movement of the ark, for example. In Numbers 4, it was commanded that the ark was to be carried on the shoulders of Levites. Not just any Levite, but Levitical priests. And not just any Levitical priest, but particularly the Kohathites. They were to carry it on rods on their shoulders and not touch the ark. And you know what happened. David slipped up. He didn't pay attention to God's word. He ignored it. He took his eyes off of God and he let them transport the ark on, on, the, on the top of a, of a cart drawn by oxen. And when the oxen stumbled, you know what happened. Uzzah instinctively reached forward to stabilize the ark and he was struck dead, disaster struck. You see, that was David's fault more than it was Uzzah's. What had happened, I think, is that David had ignored God's word. I don't know if it was intentional. David took a shortcut. He did things his own way. You see, sometimes that happens in prosperity. We take our eyes off of the word of God, and we do things sometimes out of ignorance, but sometimes out of willful rebellion. We do things our own way. I'm going to do it my way. Surely God didn't mean that it should be done this way. Then David repented, and God allowed him to rehouse the ark in the new tent there in Jerusalem. And David sacrificed, and he celebrated at the end of that. In 1 Chronicles 16, there is a psalm of thanksgiving then, because his joy has been restored, and you can find it in Psalm 96 and Psalm 105. That may be the background for this story. Or it might be later in life, late in David's reign, in 2 Samuel 24, paralleled in 1 Chronicles 20 through 22. The house there, I think, is pretty obvious. It's the temple. God has told David that he's not going to build it because he is a man of blood. He's a man of war, and it's going to be built by his son Solomon. But but David still, he, he doesn't disobey. He still makes preparations, you see, for the building of the temple. And maybe even he has written a dedication for it. We don't know. David here has succeeded even more. He's become even more prosperous. And I know he's had problems with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, and he's been disobedient. And he's suffered as a result of the rebellion of his son Absalom. I know he's had a lot of problems. But he has been quite successful. David has won all of his battles against all of the surrounding enemies on all sides, Israel is still unified, and the kingdom expands to its greatest extent until the reign of his son Solomon. He's put down Absalom's insurrection and mourns, the, mourns greed, uh, his, his son's death. He has put down Sheba's revolt. He is fortified at Mount Zion again. He has vanquished the final time through his mighty men, the Philistines, and he is secure in Zion and his fine palace with many wives. At least eight of them. That's not something we would commend him for, but that was a sign of prosperity in his day. And he has achieved legendary status as a hero, not just among his people, but among all the nations around him. And beyond that, God has done something else in 2 Samuel 7. He has established his everlasting covenant with David. You see, David has prospered. And then a curious statement pops up then in Chronicles. It says that Satan tempted David, and the result was that he numbered Israel's children, well, actually the warriors, the fighting men, the males of fighting age. He decides that he needs to number his army. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a census in the Bible. You know, God had ordered it before. He had ordered it to organize them and to marshal them as they left, you know, in the Exodus, and we find the numbers at the beginning of Numbers. He had census taken to marshal them for battle. He had census taken for them to pay taxes. There was nothing wrong with that, but David in this instance sinned because he was doing it without God's blessing, without God directing him to do so, and he assumed this. You see, he assumed that the people, the people were his subjects. The people were his subjects to number. He forgot that God had said the whole purpose of the covenant in Exodus 19 when they stood at Mount Sinai was so that you will be my people and I will be your God. I think David sees them as his people. He has also assumed that the army is his to command. And we're reminded that it is God who is the Lord of hosts and not David. You see, there's some lessons, I think, to be learned here. What prosperity can do to us, if we're not careful, is it can make us overly reliant on ourselves, like I think David may have done, to forget that God is sovereign and in control. It, It can also make us overly possessive. We forget that the army is not ours, the people are not ours. In fact, the things that we, quote, own are not our possessions. He makes us stewards of those. For a time and a season. He is Lord of everything. It, it, prosperity can also make us oddly overly anxious because those possessions that we have we want to hold on to them and we become obsessively focused on what is ours and protecting it. And I think that this is happening to David. So he issues this, this census and he tells Joab, his general, to go out. He's his nephew and the army commander. And he tells him to conduct it. And Joab protests and he said, look, you don't need to worry about this. These are God's people, and he can multiply them 100 times over if he wants to. This is sinful, but he obeys because David says do it nevertheless. And they number the people, 1.1 million warriors in Israel and Judah, and almost half of them in Judah alone. Joab, for some reason, didn't number the Levites, well, probably because they weren't going to fight, and the Benjamites, and we don't know why he didn't do that. But he obeyed otherwise. You see, in 1 Chronicles then, it clearly indicates that Joab was right. For it says that God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And David then approaches God and he prays. And God gives him three options. You will be punished, and Israel will be punished. And here are the options. You can have famine for three years. Or you can be pursued by your enemy and flee from your enemy, your army can, for three months. Or you can have a three-day plague. And David, in his wisdom, does not make a decision. Well, he does make a decision. But he doesn't choose. He says, God, I'll leave it up to you. And God chooses then to have the three-day plague. And 70,000 people die in the plague. So what does David do? Very much like in the first instance, in the first story, he repents. He is in sackcloth, and he prays a prayer of supplication for salvation. He assumes the full guilt for the incident, and he intercedes for Israel. He says, I will put my whole household in the balance for them. And he begged God for mercy and for the mercy of his people. You see, David then demonstrated his repentance what he did was he wanted to sacrifice to the Lord. He wanted to build an altar, but he would not do it on land that he did not own. So then he goes into Jerusalem and he purchases from a Jebusite by the name of Ornon a plot of land. And there he built an altar and he sacrificed it unto God. He demonstrated his repentance and then a strange thing happened. It had never happened before fire came down and it consumed the sacrifice and that was God's sign that David's sacrifice was pleasing you say oh I've heard about fire coming down from heaven before but those were two other incidents afterward the same thing happens when Solomon dedicates the temple and the sacrifices that are there the fire comes down from heaven and consumes it the story that we remember was when that prophet what was his name Who was on the mountain, on Mount Carmel? Elijah. And he has the sacrifice that God then consumes with a fire. You see, this showed that the sacrifice pleased God. And this was probably the site that the temple was built on. And it's very likely that David has written a psalm of dedication for that. And this is the house about which he is speaking. The conclusion is that God forgave and restored David He blessed him, and he restored him with a new beginning through his son Solomon, who would build a house, and David's mourning turned into dancing, very much like he danced before the Ark of the Covenant before, and his sackcloth to gladness. I think that Psalm 30 may recount David's sin and confession and restoration. You see, David's prosperity made him overly focused on his own power and his success, it made him feel invincible. Look at what it says in, in, in verse number 6. I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Now, you, there, there are other times that David says that, but he doesn't say it with the same kind of hubris. It, 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 when he says it there, he's really talking about the power of God to preserve it. But I think here, you know, it's really ironic that 20 Psalms before in Psalm 10, David identifies this as the very quality of the wicked person. You see, the wicked person says to himself, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I will not be in adversity. It's just possible that David, in his success and prosperity, thinks that he is above adversity. You see, it also makes him feel rather privileged. Oh, Lord, by your favor, you see, my mountain has been made strong. Well. That gives God the credit, I know, but it also has an underlying tone, I think, of special indulgence by God. You see, I'm specially favored by God, specially privileged. Sometimes it can make us feel invincible, like David. Sometimes it can make us feel like we're specially privileged, and that is an epidemic problem in our nation today. Or it can make us feel very possessive. You notice he didn't say that you have made your mountain strong you have made my mountain to stand strong this is mount zion this is a place where the temple of god is going to be built not the palace of david and then god rebuked david in verse number seven you hid your face and i was dismayed god's hidden face is a clear sign of divine displeasure Moses gave this warning to Israel in Deuteronomy 31 and 32 time and time again. and said, if you, if you disobey God, he will hide his face from you. And time and time and time again, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Micah say the very same thing. Because Israel has displeased God, he has hidden his face. It's the opposite of the Aaronic blessing in number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord, what, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's the opposite of the blessing. It, in fact, reflects David's greatest fear. Even greater than his fear of his enemies, even greater than his fear of declining health, even greater than the fear of his mortality, was that God would abandon him. In Psalm 13, he said, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 89, he says very much the same thing. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? David clearly knows that God is displeased with him, and he has withdrawn his favor. And what this does is it exposes him to all the adversity that we have seen in verses 1 through 3, and it results in the Lord's discipline. Now, that's not a bad thing, is it? Is it a bad thing to suffer the discipline of the Lord? When we're prospering and God gets our attention and takes us through adversity and disciplines us, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the author of Hebrews very clearly tells us that it is a good thing. In Hebrews 12, that great passage where we're surrounded by a great host of saints, it goes on to say in verse number 11, All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful. No joy in discipline. Right, young people? When your parents discipline you, it's not a joyful thing. You don't like it. You're uncomfortable. Especially for parents that sometimes don't spoil the rod and spoil the child. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, that's what God is doing with David here. And David repents in verses 8 through 10. He called upon the Lord like he had cried to the Lord in verse number 2 in his adversity. He does it again. In supplication and that is a call for salvation in verses 8 and 9 He calls for the restoration of the favor of God Like he had called upon God then to deliver him from shale He now asks him to deliver him from the pit Not just to save him but he knows this If he goes down into the pit his ashes will not praise God He understands that his ultimate purpose is to praise God This isn't a bargaining chip that David is using. He's being sincere about it. He wants to be restored to the place where he can praise God again. And then he issues a threefold prayer. That prayer is based on faith that issues forth in hope that is rooted in David's experience. You see, before God has rescued him from his enemies, from ill health, and from falling into shale in verses 1 through 3. And he remembers that, and he calls upon God in hope and faith from that experience. Hear, O Lord, be gracious to me, be my helper. David, if he was anything, was a man of prayer. Okay, so he's made a mistake. And the, the, the answer is to do what for any of us? When we find ourselves out of God's favor... When we sense that God has hidden his face from us, it does not mean that he's not listening. He's still listening, and he wants us to talk to him. You know, there are nine occasions in First and 2 Samuel where David, God hadn't hidden his face from him, but David seeks God's counsel. There's some difficult problem that David needs to resolve, some big step that he needs to make, and he doesn't know whether to go to the right or to the left or what to do. And he seeks counsel from God, and on those nine occasions, God answered very clearly. Very clearly in verses 1 through 5, God has answered when he called out in adversity. So he's not praying emptily with a wish, He's praying with a certain hope based on faith that God has delivered before, and he can do so again, that his favor is not momentary. God is not a fickle God. He's not going to show favor upon us sometimes and not at other times. He will show favor upon his people and answer their prayer whenever they call upon him. In verse number five, his favor is for what? For a lifetime. So just as God had helped David before, he could do so again. He had lifted him up, verse 1. He had heard him, in verse 2, and he had kept him alive, in verse 3. And God's answer is not in this psalm, but it's implied. Very clearly, God answered David's prayer because it results in joy and praise. David's joy was renewed. It turned his mourning into dancing, his sackcloth into clothing of gladness. And this very much echoes Psalm 51, what's David doing? He has pled to the Lord to restore the joy of his salvation. And what's David's response? He has understood that he can fulfill his ultimate purpose. He's delivered from the pit, and he bursts forth with thanksgiving and praise and commits to do so eternally. You know, sometimes, friends, we need to be rescued in our prosperity. We've taken our eyes off of God. I think America as a whole is dangerously in that position. It is time for us to turn to the Lord. As much as we need delivery from adversity, we also need rescuing in our prosperity. You know, prosperity is a great seduction. Prosperity, it's not about prosperity, folks. Biblical prosperity is this. The grace of prosperity is this. All prosperity comes from God. God cares for us, and he wants us to prosper. The path of prosperity is very clear. It's given to us by Joshua. Obey God, keep what he says in the scripture, and do not deviate to the right or the left. Stay stay in the center of God's will. The power of true prosperity is to trust God, to trust God and to work hard and to rely on him to provide. The wisdom of prosperity is to rely on God To grow us not only in adversity, but also in prosperity. And here it is. The state of prosperity is what? It is what we talked about in the second candle. It's peace. It's peace and contentment in the Lord's provision. There are perils in prosperity. There's peril in the prosperity gospel, too. You see, God had warned Israel in Deuteronomy 6, whenever you enter the land that I give you and there are wells that you didn't dig, there are houses that you didn't build, there are fruit of vineyards and, and, and vines and, and, and grapes that you didn't plant, he says to do what? Enjoy those things, but don't do this. Don't forget that I am the God who delivered you and brought you into this land of prosperity. We need to be careful that we don't forget the Lord and our prosperity. You see, the problems of prosperity are this. Prosperity is a goal in itself. It leads to pride, an inflated view of self, as we saw with David. It leads to foolish reliance on self instead of God. It leads us to focus on things and worldliness and God on, not, not on God's kingdom, which is idolatry. It leads us to acquisitiveness. What is enough? More. It leads to anxiety, a fear of losing it all and protecting everything at all costs so that we compromise our principles to hold on to it. We want to avoid adversity at all costs. And when we go through no adversity, friends, then we become soft. Adversity is a good thing because it's like spiritual isometrics. It builds our faith and our hopes stronger. In prosperity, the higher and the higher we go without God, when the bottom drops out, the farther we fall. We forget that like adversity, prosperity has perils. And like adversity, prosperity also is temporary. The only thing that is permanent is the Lord's joy, and it doesn't depend on prosperity or adversity. A tragic example of this is David's own son. (laughs) You would expect me to mention him, wouldn't you? The God-favored, God-blessed, wisest, richest, most powerful and prosperous king ever. 1 Kings 10. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in in his riches and in his wisdom. And all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom which God had put in his heart. But Solomon fell prey to the perils of prosperity. The last thing that we read about Solomon before then Rehoboam becomes king is He married how many wives? 700 wives. The main purpose was to cement peaceful relationships through treaties with those that surrounded him, with the Egyptians and the Hittites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Sidonians. And wives beyond that, he had 300 concubines, and we know what happened. He then followed the gods of his wives, the Sidonian Ashtoreth, the Moabite Chemosh, and the Ammonite Molech and then all of the other gods that his wives burnt incense to and sacrificed to he turned to idolatry and in displeasure and anger God turned away from Solomon he brought opponents in the form of Hadad the Edomite and Rezon the Syrian to fight against Solomon and he tore away the majority of his kingdom from his son Rehoboam and gave it to his civil servant his superintendent of public works Jeroboam there are perils and prosperity. Let me close with this. God uses adversity sometimes to disabuse us of some prosperity notions. You see, one of those is we don't really own what we possess. Whatever blessings you have, they're temporary. God gave, gave them to us as what? As stewards. Another thing that he reminds us of is we're not special. Oh, don't get me wrong. He loves each one of you and he loves me uniquely because we're created in the image of God. And Jesus Christ died and shed his blood to save you as a unique individual, yes. But neither you nor I are special because we have wealth, or power, or title, or position. God is no respecter of persons. Another of these that he disabuses us of is that our purpose and our goal in this world is not to prosper. That's not our destiny any more than adversity is. Those are just conditions in which we live, where God works His eternal purpose for us so that someday we will stand before Him and glorify Him and praise Him. You see, God has a middle way of joy. God has a middle way of joy. It's neither adversity nor prosperity. You see, adversity doesn't produce joy. Prosperity doesn't produce joy. What adversity does is it produces hope. It produces hope so that we have faith that God can deliver, and when that delivery is realized, then we have joy, and it does what? It strengthens our hope and our faith. Prosperity doesn't produce joy. It might produce temporary happiness. One of two things happens in prosperity by which we grow. Either we appreciate God's favor, and we enjoy it, and we give him credit and joy and thanksgiving, or we do like David did temporarily. We become arrogant and self-focused, And then God rebukes us, but he can even redeem that when we repent, and he can draw us closer to him as he did with David so that we have a closer walk with him. But you see, prosperity and adversity don't produce joy. They're the conditions in which we work. God's middle way of contentment, then, is between adversity and prosperity. You see, we should never be too high, and we should never be too low. We should not be driven by the circumstances around us. We need to be we need to learn to be content. You know where I'm going with this. Paul told us. If we are in Christ, we are content. We need to be like Paul. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know to get along with humble things, that is, with nothing. I also know how to live in prosperity and to abound. In any ever circumstance, Paul says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Of having abundance and suffering need I can do all things Through him who strengthens me You see this middle way of prosperity Is like the divine Neutral wire I was at Home Depot the other day And the bulb had just burned out I think uses this as as a sermon illustration One Wednesday night I'd had this bulb for about two weeks And it burned out on me So I thought it was a defective bulb And then the fellow that worked in the lighting department Told me he said you know you might have a bad neutral wire in your wiring because if it's loose what happens is that power surge goes through and it blows the bulb you see that's what we're saying here is God's sort of like the divine neutral wire I don't mean to trivialize this but not too much positive not too little negative what he wants us to do is to be grounded to be grounded in him to be grounded and rely on him and not focused on our adversity and our prosperity so that he can transform us in any situation to become whom he has empowered us to be. You see, we see this in Jesus Christ, don't we? This begins with hope in him and faith in him and faith in God's grace, and we can grow in both adversity and prosperity. Jesus did the same. He stood on the Mount of Transfiguration, and in his basking in the Shekinah glory of God, the father says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Wow. Prosperity. And then he came down off the mountain, and eventually he ends up at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he sweats as it were great drops of blood And he says that my soul is grieved Even to the point of death Adversity But you see He didn't let his prosperity and being the son of God Take his eyes off the father And he didn't let his being the son of man and the son of sorrow The man of sorrow Take his eyes off of the father Because of the joy that was set before him He marched to Jerusalem because of the joy set before him. He then stood before Pilate because of the joy set before him. He stood before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Before the joy set before him, he went to the cross, and he sacrificed his life for you and me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You've heard me say this numerous times. The joy that was set before him was that he knew that he was going home to be with the Father. He didn't let prosperity sidetrack him. He didn't let adversity depress him to the point that he would not fulfill his mission. You see, he is the divine grounding in whose will we must abide I don't know what you're dealing with today. You may be on the high of prosperity and the joy of God blessing you in a way that you've never been blessed before. Watch out, folks. That's temporary. You may be struggling with depression. You may be struggling with the loss of a loved one. You may be struggling with some kind of um, diagnosis that you've gotten about your health. Watch out. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. You see for the one Who went through it all And he's been through what you've been through He can take you through the adversity And through the prosperity And he can take you home Let not your hearts be troubled You believe in God Believe also in me For I go to prepare a place for you And if I go to prepare a place for you In my father's house I will come again and receive you unto myself So that where I am you may be also He has prepared a place for you And someday, if you believe in him, you'll be in his house, glorifying the Father forever and serving him. There is a a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest near to the heart of God. Take note of the last verse. There is a place of full release near to the heart of God, a place. Where all is joy and peace near to the heart of God. Who is near to the heart of God? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he invites you this morning to give your life to him, to follow him through adversity and prosperity. What's God's pleasure with you this morning as we respond to the invitation?
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals. To reach the lost for Christ. To learn more about Christ. To touch the city through Christ train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.